Welcome to the Campus Reach Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 19, Intro to Christ Myths. Behold, a sore went forth to sow, bearing precious seed in his hand, hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Welcome to the FLF Network, that's the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, where we are seeking to produce Christ-centered content for all of life, for the whole world, and this strand, uh, this little piece of the pie, what we're seeking to do on um, this podcast is to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. Uh, So one of the central elements of what the church is doing in the world is announcing the good news uh, that Israel's Messiah, Jesus, has in fact been crucified, dead, buried, is resurrected, and he's putting the world to right. And right now, Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God the Father with all authority on the heaven and earth, and he's reconciling all things, things in heaven, things on earth, uh, to himself. We get that from Colossians 1. Uh, we see that in the Old Testament, Psalm chapter uh, 2, and as well as the Great Commission. And we're optimistic on what the Great Commission is actually doing, that we will be converting the world. And there are certain times where it's pretty easy to be pessimistic. You turn on the news and it seems that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and that we are completely losing our minds. Um, but as Christians, what we're seeking to do is to renew our mind, uh, to be equipped, to share the gospel, call people to repentance and faith in God's only Son, and bring people to maturity. Um, and when you're doing that, uh, eventually, inevitably, if you're sharing the gospel with somebody, someone's going to raise an objection uh, to the Christian faith. Why do you believe that? And what this podcast is going to seek to do, encourage you to go out and evangelize. You start to talk to somebody, they're going to ask you, why do you believe that? Then hopefully you can say, ah, Keith talked about that. Hopefully that will happen. And it's going to take uh, a while because there's a lot of different pieces of the puzzle that we need to put together that we're explaining to people. And because and there's a sense in which we can make it reductionistic, uh, but we're dealing with individuals. And when you're dealing with individuals, the last thing you want is a cookie-cutter apologetic. Um, if you find yourself using the same three or four moves every time you're discussing with somebody, um, you're probably very rarely communicating the actual gospel with somebody. And I was actually talking to someone about this the other day, and we are looking at men like C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer and taking their apologetic and the number of inf- people uh, that they have influenced around the world. And you take that compared to, say, some other uh, apologists whose influence has been, may have been strong in the context of Christianity, um, but very rarely have we seen fruit with respect to people being converted uh, through them sharing the gospel. And I think a big part of that uh, gets around the fact that oftentimes uh, we, we kind of treat our apologetic method as a silver bullet and that we just kind of have two or three moves, and then if they don't submit, then we'll, we'll read them Romans 1 and shake the dust off our feet and move on. And so one of the things I want to encourage and equip you in doing is that basically I want your apologetic to be um, like a Swiss Army knife. And if you need a shovel or a spoon, we got a spoon in there, we got a fork, we got a screwdriver, we got everything that you need to communicate to the people that you're talking to. Because even if you think of your own life and you think of people in your family and people that you're close to, you all think a little bit differently. And things that persuade one person isn't as persuasive to another person. And one of the things that you need to learn to do is to be somewhat persuasive. That's why even Paul would say, long time or short, I hope to persuade all men. Or knowing the fear of the Lord, therefore we persuade men. Oftentimes, I feel like we assert, oh, it's not our job to persuade anybody. Well, that's, ha- that's, that's partially true. Obviously, it's the Holy Spirit. Uh, but again, the means the Holy Spirit uses more often than not is going to be us and not just uh, 
you know, he obviously does use truth in the preaching of the word, um, but he uses us. And so we want to uh, give a reason for the hope that we have. We want to do it with general respect. We want our uh, conversation to be seasoned with salt to outsiders and all that sort of stuff. So that brings us to today's episode where we're going to discuss dying and rising gods. We're not going to spend tons and tons and tons of time with it uh, because what I want to do is this, or kind of give you up the speed where we're at. Uh, first of all, uh, when we began this series, I was back with Judaism in Daniel chapter 2. And the reason, uh, or Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9. And the reason we started in Daniel was what I wanted to show is that Jesus is fundamentally Jewish. And so even when you begin to interact with people who want to say that Jesus is a myth, uh, one of the things you want to say is, nope, the New Testament is thoroughly Jewish. Um, if you want to find archetypes in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills, amen, we can do that. But just to claim that they borrowed from ancient Near Eastern mythological religions, um, I'm going to say it's completely fallacious because it's not taking seriously enough the Jewish context of the New Testament and the Jewish context of all the apostles, as well as the Jewish context of Jesus, of, of how the Gospels present Jesus. Um, so you think about our apologetic, uh, the short uh, of Daniel chapter 2 is that it has four kingdoms, the Golden Kingdom going down to the Bronze Kingdom, starting with the Babylonian Empire, which is very, uh, Daniel makes explicit, to Nebuchadnezzar, that uh, the first kingdom is him, the next king that fell on its heels with the Medo-Persian kingdom, then the Greek kingdom, and then the Roman Empire. And I believe that Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9 predicts that the Messiah will come during the Roman Empire. Bam! First century, Jesus arrives on the scene, and we argued is the Jewish Messiah. Um, and so, so if, if Judaism is true, and I believe that it is in the context of the Old Testament, then it follows that the Messiah would come during the Roman Empire. So either Judaism is false or it's true. We believe it's true. Down chapter 9 says the prince will be cut off. Also speaks to the destruction of Jerusalem or destruction of the city. And I'd maintain that that happened in AD 70. Jesus was cut off in about 30, 30 33 AD. Uh, destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9. And um, so, and then we just kind of looked at a basic aspect of some of the things the New Testament teaches regarding the historicity of Jesus and even what other secular historians would verify. So that Jesus actually existed. Uh, we have Tacitus and Josephus being outside sources that would reflect that. Um, they witnessed to the death of Jesus. Um, they also witnessed to the fact that at the very least, a group of Jews began to run around and preach the resurrection of Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians 15, I pass on you that which the first importance of Christ died, was buried, was raised up according to the scriptures. And if you remember last week's episode or two weeks' episode, we discussed how that was basically a creedal formula that goes all the way back, as James Dunn would argue, probably within six months of when the church was founded or the crucifixion of Jesus. So going all the way back um, to very early on, the Christians were preaching that Jesus was resurrected. Now we know, and, and I'm, I'm saying that from the standpoint of interacting with secular man who is more often than not willing to give you those facts. As Christians, we obviously believe that Jesus is in fact the Messiah and the book of Acts lays it out plainly and is true. Uh, but what I'm seeking to address is when you're interacting with the unbeliever, the facts that they're willing to give you. And, and, and th this is part of it. it. This is somewhat presuppositional from the standpoint that what facts are they willing to give you? They're usually willing to give you that Galatians was written by Paul. They're usually willing to give you that 1 Corinthians is written by Paul. Uh, they're willing to give you that Jesus existed, that Jesus died under Pontius Pilate. They're giving you those things. And so we want to work with what they're willing to give you and say, see, you're giving us this. Now, what's the best explanation? Why would a group of Jews begin to run around, run around and say he rose from the dead? And, you know, 
they're, they're going to have to explain that. And most of the objection is going to be some sort of naturalism. We know that men don't rise from the dead, therefore some other explanation. But get them to explain why it actually happened. And that's going to bring us to uh, tonight's episode where we want to discuss the idea that some people claim that what happened is that Christianity stole their story from other ancient Near Eastern myths, be it Osiris, Mithra, and the like. And so, you know, we could probably do a whole series on these alternate gods, and maybe one day we'll get a little more in-depth with them. But what I want to lay out here is uh, just a very broad parameter. And I'm going to play a clip from a guy named Richard Carrier. So if, if you were to get into the Christ myth angle of things, Richard Carrier is like the only... I guess like maybe reputable might be the right word. He has a he has like a I'll, I'll say he has a PhD in the at least in the right uh, area of study. So he has a PhD and he's written quite a bit on this. Um, and what I want to show here is that like even their best, I think it's very weak. And um, I'm, I'm stealing a clip from a radio program called Unbelievable Radio, and he had a debate with a guy named Doctor Marshall, who I'm unfamiliar with. And Carrier and Marshall had this debate, and I thought it was pretty awful. It was like a very tedious, um, who's more scholarly, uh, peer-reviewed. It was just, it was just very pedantic, unproductive. And you realize at a certain point you're just casting pearls before swine. So if you bump into a rich Carrier on the street, just kind of go ahead and shake the dust off your feet. Don't worry about arguing with them. And as I've gotten older in the Lord, I've I've far more comfortable of not feeling like I need to persuade everybody, and I'm far more comfortable just being like, ah, this guy. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's swine, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue with them. And Richard Carrier is kind of, to be honest with you, in that category. But with that said, I also want to uh, he's going to influence people downstream who may ignorantly follow him, who are not going to be as pedantic and as jerkish as he was. So here's a clip uh, from Richard Carrier from that uh, program, and then I'm going to respond accordingly. So that leaves us with the New Testament, and that's a really our only source for the historicity of Jesus. And what the New Testament gives us are a bunch of epistles, uh, once we exclude the ones that are recognized widely by mainstream scholarship as forgeries, all we have left are certain epistles that actually never clearly put Jesus on earth. Uh, they seem to talk about Jesus in a cosmic, theological, scriptural sense, uh, and talk about receiving the teachings of him through revelation, rather than people actually sitting at his feet and then passing on what he said. Now, in that clip, uh, right before that clip, actually, Carrier talks about how we can't trust any sources outside the New Testament because he wants to say that they were doctored uh, by Christians. So Josephus, that's been edited by Christians. Tacitus, that's just been influenced by Christians. So we're not really getting any uh, new information. Um, but this is from Bart Ehrman's uh, book, uh, Did Jesus Exist, on page 92. Uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, in this chapter, he's talking about uh, the Gospels as historical sources, and obviously, Bart Ehrman being agnostic, and I think even nowadays he might be an atheist, he does not believe that the Gospels uh, represent real miracles um, and that a real resurrection, um, but he does still accept many uh, quote-unquote facts in the Gospels as being historically reliable and true, that there was a man, Jesus, who was from the town of Nazareth, that was crucified, uh, dead, buried, and all of that. So, so he's accepting those things, but here it's part of a bigger discussion. Um, but what I want you to see here is that um, even in the context when we just use the term gospels, uh, those people who are studying history, um, they realize that there are numerous actually um, independent sources testifying to the historicity of Jesus. And so let me quote uh, Ehrman on page 92. He says, we, uh, we are not dealing 
with just one gospel that reports what Jesus said and did from sometime near the end of the first century. We have a number of surviving gospels. I named seven. So he's including things like the Gospel of Thomas and, and things that we would not include as being canon, but he sees these as being evidences that the man Jesus of Nazareth really existed and that you had different streams coming out of his existence and his life that were witnessing to him. So even though we're not going to accept those as being uh, authoritative, authoritative, canonical, and we might even say that they are heretical, we would say, like especially the Gospel of Thomas is heretical, we would say those things are heretical, but they are still uh, testimonies to the aspect that Jesus uh, lived. So if you think of David Koresh for a second, who was killed by the federal government in 1993, and let's just say we have existing literature, you know, this is a little bit anachronistic because we have video and all that sort of stuff. Um, but if we just had writings from some of his followers that said he was the Messiah and stuff like that and, you know, boasted of the things he was able to do, even if we rejected the reality that he's the Messiah and rejected that he did these miraculous signs and wonders, uh, we don't have to deny the fact that David Koresh existed. So in a similar fashion, because the Gospel of Thomas distorts the nature of who Jesus is, it does not follow in any way, shape, or form that there are not maybe historical truths in there. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. Uh, so if you just think of David Koresh, uh, embellished stories of his life, Gospel of Thomas, witnessing to the historicity of Jesus, but uh, in the context of heretical theology and things like that. So that that's more of what Bart Ehrman's driving at here. So anyway, he says, we have a number of surviving Gospels, I named seven, that are either completely independent of one another or independent in a large number of their traditions. These all attest to the existence of Jesus. Moreover, these independent witnesses corroborate many of the same basic sets of data. For example, that Jesus not only lived, but that he was a Jewish teacher who was crucified by the Romans at the instigation of Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. Even more important, these independent witnesses are based on a relatively large number of written predecessors, Gospels that no longer survive, but that um, now that might sound odd to you, gospels no longer survive. But even if you think of the beginning of uh, Luke's gospel, where he talks about uh, how he looked into these things and he uh, looked at numerous resources um, that Theo Theopolis may be certain. So even the gospel of Luke says that Jesus looked into these things, and and many have uh, taken up to written an account, is what Luke even says. So so this sort of stuff should not bother us. We should just say, yep, that's actually what Luke's telling us that, that numerous people have taken up an account of of Jesus. Um, so one of the important things. Uh, even more important, these independent witnesses are based on a relatively large number of uh, written predecessors, gospels that no longer survive, but that almost certainly once existed. Some of these earlier written texts have been shown beyond reasonable doubt to date back at least to the 50s of the Common Era. They derive from locations around the Mediterranean and, again, are independent of one another. If historians prefer lots of witnesses that corroborate one another's claims without showing evidence of collaboration, we have that and a relative abundance in the written sources that attest to the existence of the historical Jesus. So contra um, Richard Carrier, uh, we don't have... Uh, very limited sources or no sources outside of the New Testament that would vouch for the historicity of Jesus. And then he taps in this idea. So part of Richard Carey's idea, and I was going to do uh, Christ myth this week, but I'm, I'm introducing the topic. Um, and then next week, we're going to look at Horus and Osiris. Um, I think it'll be helpful. Um, but for Richard Carrier, he believes that the that Christ is a myth in the sense that uh, every, that as, as he lays out there, there's nowhere in the New Testament he believes 
that Jesus actually existed on earth, but that Paul has these revelation, and he kind of has this cosmic Jesus that he worships, um, but not a real historical person. And um, in that clip there, even if we look at um, what we consider are the undisputed uh, Pauline epistles, and so without getting uh, too far afield, in critical scholarship, um, I believe it's seven, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, First Thessalonians and Philemon are considered the undisputed Pauline epistles, and a lot of critical scholars would reject, say, Colossians and Ephesians have, as having been written by Paul. Um, and in some ways, you know, in, in the context of this debate, we're willing to say, that's fine, give us Galatians, give us Romans, uh, Philippians, First Thessalonians, etc. And what you realize is this, that when you begin to look in like I was laying out the last couple of weeks, if you go to the book of Galatians, um, what's the best way to understand Galatians 1 when Paul says, after three years, I went up and visited Peter and James, the brother of our Lord. Does When he says that James, the brother of our Lord, does that sound like a person who never stepped foot on earth, that Paul was only receiving cosmic revelations that had nothing to do um, with very physical, tangible things? So when he went up after three years and he visited Peter and James, well, what did Peter and James believe in? Where do they get these ideas of revelation? Um, was it this cosmic thing, or is it thoroughly Jewish in the context of Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, that the Messiah would come? And so if, then you go over to Romans chapter 1, and Paul says, um, Paul, a slave of Christ, he's called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So what, what did the Old Testament predict the Messiah would be? Even if you're like Bart Ehrman, you don't want to accept that the Messiah is going to be God in the flesh, fine, but there's little doubt that God promised someone according to the seed of David that would sit on his throne forever, and that the Israelites look forward to some sort of physical person who would in fact be their Messiah. So when Paul says, according to the scriptures, that brings us back to a Jewish context, not a Gnostic context, not a mythicist context, but a Jewish context. Um, so he sent the Messiah, according to, and then according to the flesh, uh, he was the son of God, son of David, according to the flesh, the killer of the son of God, with power by his resurrection from the dead. Uh, and then even in Romans chapter 9, um, deals with uh, the flesh of Israel. And so what we see here um, throughout uh, the New Testament in the undisputed epistles, so even in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, Paul appeals to Jesus' earthly ministry uh, regarding his uh, views on divorce, and uh, things like that. And then Paul very clearly preaches that he was crucified in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So even if you take the undisputed Pauline epistles, um, there is abundant evidence. Also, I just thought of Galatians, I think it's 4.4, where it talked about God sent a son, born of a woman, born under the law. Um, you, know, you can make that mythological if you want, say that born, being born of a woman is, uh, you know, some sort of uh, parable or something like that. Um, but if you're just taking kind of the plain sense of the words of a Jew in the first century, um, I don't think you're getting at a mythological being, but you're getting at a real historical person. Uh, you, you see that in Galatians, you see that in Romans, you also see it in the Gospels, and just the very nature of crucifixion and everything else. So uh, that's a little bit of an introduction to the idea of these mythicists, of where they're coming from. And, and once people begin to reject... Um, the historicity of Jesus. they got to go into this mythological way. And it's becoming more and more popular. I remember about 10 years ago, uh, maybe a little less than that, nine years ago, when I first started traveling and preaching again, and everybody's watching this movie, Zeitgeist, which was basically two hours of 
uh, a two-hour movie of this mythological idea that, that Christianity stole all their ideas um, from these myths. And uh, well, the, the bottom line is there's just simply no evidence for that. And before I wrapped up, I wanted to uh, look at one other thing. Oftentimes when I'm on campus, when uh, people are rejecting uh, the historicity of Jesus, uh, the, the common line is along the lines that the Romans kept at such extensive details and records um, that there would surely be some uh, historical evidence that Jesus was crucified, that there would be some record of this happening, that there'd be records of his existence and everything else. And I'm going to read again from Bart Ehrman, uh, Did Jesus Exist? And this is from page uh, 44. And he says this, basically there's almost, you know, the Romans almost have no records of any Jews of that day. Uh, And he goes on to say this, in that connection, I should reiterate that it is a complete myth, in quotes, in the mythicist sense, that Romans kept detailed records of everything, and that as a result, we are inordinately well-informed about the world of the Roman Palestine, and should expect, then, to hear about Jesus if he really lived. If Romans kept such records, where are they? We certainly don't have any. Think of everything we do know about the reign of Pontius Pilate as governor of Judea. We know from Jewish historian Josephus that Pilate ruled for 10 years between 26 and 36 uh, AD. It would be easy to argue that he was the single most important figure for Roman Palestine for the entire length of his rule. And what records from that decade do we have from his reign? What Roman records of his major accomplishments, his daily itinerary, the decrees he passed, the laws he issued, and parishioners he put on trial, the death warrants he signed, his scandals, his interviews, his judicial proceedings? We have none. Nothing at all. I might press the issue further. We, what archaeological evidence do we have about Pontius Pilate's uh, rule in Palestine? We have some court that were issued during his reign, and one, only one fragmentary inscription discovered in Caesarea Maritima in 1961 that indicates that he was the Roman prefect. Nothing else. And what writings do we have from him? Not a single word. Does that mean he didn't exist? No. He is mentioned in several passages in Josephus and in the writings of Alexandrian Jewish philosopher Philo and in the Gospels. He certainly existed, though, like Jesus. We have no records from his day or writings from his hand, etc. So uh, those are going to be two common aspects of things that are going to be thrown out if you're evangelizing, if people bring up the idea. I mean, people believe in the flat earth again today. People believe 9-11 was an inside job. Maybe you believe 9-11 was an inside job. But uh, many people believe this stuff, and so it's, you know, you're going to deal with it. And so when they, cl- if, if, and all you have to be able to do is just, Always just ask for primary sources when people make ridiculous arguments like, oh, the Romans kept such extensive details. Would you please give me uh, primary resources? Because we're always going to go back to the Bible. We have a primary resource. They're not going to have any primary resources uh, to point you at. Same thing with Osiris and Mithra that we're going to look at next week. Just ask them for primary resources. They're not going to have them. Um, so uh, that's the basic gist from today, uh, the idea that uh, you know Jesus really lived on earth despite what the mythicists claimed the minute they reject uh, the historicity of Jesus, they got to come up with something to explain why Christianity existed. And, you know, from the undisputed letters that we have from Paul that even their likes of Richard Carrier would sign off on, um, the text clearly acknowledges that Jesus Christ lived on earth. So uh, that's this week. I'm going to be hitting the road starting next week. I'm in northern Idaho right now. I'm going to go down to Southern California, I believe, for the first week of June. Then I'm going to race all over the United States. I should be in Iowa. I might make it up to Minnesota. I should be through Indiana, uh, southeastern Ohio, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, uh, Peoria, I don't know about Peoria, that was an old rap song. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be everywhere. And so if you are between Southern California, Florida, New York City, I should get to New York City in July, um, and you'd like to meet up, 
uh, feel free to contact me at Campus Evangel or Keith at CampusPreacher.com. And if you go to CampusPreacher.com, there's also a contact form there that you can uh, feel free to contact me in. And so, yeah, I would love to meet up with you, fellowship with you, talk about what's going on. we got a lot of exciting things in the hopper, hopefully here up in Idaho um, and some other stuff. So may the Lord bless you, keep you. Any questions, comments, demands, don't be afraid to reach out. God bless. Bye. Hoping and hope that he might see it grow Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom He runs on his way, there's no time to be